People in eastern Kentucky are trying to recover after flash flooding devastated the region. What are you going to do? You got to grab a shovel, help people out best you can. Those people who are without a place to stay, you try to give them some shelter. At least 16 people have died in the floods. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, a look back at Joe Biden's week, week personally and professionally. And the Arab Spring movement began in Tunisia in hopes of democracy being able to survive in that country. People think that once there's democracy, everything will work out and they expect their lives to improve immediately. That did not happen in Tunisia. Now voters there have given their president near total power. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. In Kentucky, the death toll from flooding has risen to at least 16. As search and rescue crews, including the National Guard, search flooded Appalachian communities for people listed as missing. Governor Andy Bashir says it's devastating. We've made about 50 aerial rescues, hundreds of boat rescues, but still a lot more to do. President Biden declared a disaster in the state. The record floods have wiped out entire communities in some of the poorest places in America, and mudslides left many people marooned and without power, making rescues difficult. China's President Xi Jinping is cautioning the U.S. against meddling in Beijing's dealings with Taiwan. Sources tell NPR House Speaker Nancy Pelosi could leave for her trip to Asia as soon as tonight, and they say a stopover in Taiwan is possible. China warned earlier that such a trip would be viewed as a hostile act. A visit by such a high-ranking U.S. lawmaker is controversial because of Taiwan's contested status. China claims the island as part of its territory. Russia and the Ukraine are trading accusations of responsibility over the bombardment of a prison in eastern Ukraine that was holding Ukrainian prisoners of war. Fifty-three soldiers were killed, dozens were injured. That according to Russia's news agency Interfax. NPR's Tim Mack has more. Both the Ukrainian and Russian military agree that a prison in the settlement of Olenivka in eastern Ukraine had been shelled. A leader for Russian-backed separatist authorities in Donetsk said that Ukraine opened fire on the prison intentionally in order to prevent Ukrainian prisoners from giving statements. Ukraine, meanwhile, said that the Russian military shelled the prison in order to hide the execution and torture of Ukrainian prisoners held there. The Ukrainian military also said that it had not launched any missile or artillery strikes in the area of the prison. NPR is unable to independently verify the claims made by Ukrainian and Russian forces. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. A new government report shows the Education Department lost billions of dollars running the federal direct student loan program. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo has more. From 1997 to 2021, the U.S. Department of Education estimated that payments from federal direct student loans would generate $114 billion. But according to the GAO report, the program ended up costing the government nearly $200 billion. A large percentage of that shortfall stemmed from emergency COVID relief under the CARES Act. Student loan interest and collections have been frozen since 2020. The report also points out that initial predictions did not account for a high enough percentage of borrowers choosing an income-driven repayment plan, which shifts the timeline for repayment and does not provide the same payoff for the government. The GAO says half of all direct loans are now paid through these plans. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Transit Administration is ordering what it calls an immediate safety stand-down at the MBTA. The order means no worker can move train cars in yards or shops until they've attended a mandatory safety briefing. The federal agency is taking the action after three trains since the month of May have gotten loose by accident and begun to roll through rail yards and maintenance facilities. The latest was Monday at Braintree Station on the Red Line. The FDA calls the incidents exceptionally dangerous. The stand-on order goes into effect just after midnight tonight. The T has not responded to a request for comment on whether the stand-on will affect service. Abortion services will remain legal in Massachusetts after Governor Charlie Baker today signed a bill in response to the Supreme Court decision that overturns Roe v. Wade. The new state law will protect providers who offer services to out-of-state patients from being subject to anti-abortion laws in the patient's home state. More from WBUR's Steve Brown. Baker quietly signed the bill in his office before his staff issued a news release to announce it. The legislature clarified language regarding when abortions can be performed after 24 weeks, allowing it in cases of grave diagnosis for the fetus as well as to save the life of the mother. Becca Hart Holder of Reproductive Equity Now is overwhelmed with joy. I think it is an extraordinary thing that Massachusetts came out swinging to the Supreme Court's attack on reproductive freedom with a bill that makes us the national leader on protecting patients and providers. The new law also requires insurers to fully cover abortions without passing deductibles or co-pays on to patients. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Plymouth's harbormaster is warning boaters to stay away from a group of juvenile humpback whales that are feeding in the area. Federal guidelines advise mariners to stay at least 100 yards away from whales at all times. Harbormaster Chad Hunter says it's important to follow the guidance after a whale breached and landed on the bow of a fishing boat last weekend. I think it was kind of a reminder to people that it can be dangerous. Not only can it be uh, a safety issue for the whale, but that could have been a safety issue for the people on the boat as well. Hunter says the Coast Guard and the state environmental police are increasing patrols in the area to make sure no one is harassing the animals. In the forecast, bright and hot today. Clouds on the increase tonight, still breezy, falling to about 68, so a little more comfortable. There is the chance of showers overnight, and then tomorrow should start up cloudy. Sunshine breaking through for the majority of the day, highs about 86. Sunday, sunshine lasting through the day, about 87 for a high. The first few days of next week should reach 90. 88 degrees now in Boston at 407. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Kentucky, at least 16 people have died after flash flooding in the eastern part of the state. This is following a series of storms. Several hundred people have been rescued so far. And Governor Andy Bashir said today emergency crews are still out searching. The people impacted by this are going to lose just about everything. And we believe that there will be thousands that have impacted Well, one of the towns inundated by floodwaters is Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is where we find Dee Davis. He is publisher of The Daily Yonder. He's on the line now. Mr. Davis, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We got a mess here, but, you know, I'm safe. I lived on the top of a hill. Uh, A lot of people had it hard. Uh, The water came up quick, and it was violent, and um, it was rough. Yeah, I saw a video you posted last night. This is It was the Kentucky River, and it was rising up to the Main Street Bridge and then right over it. That's right. We're used to floods. You know, sometimes uh, the water spills out of 
banks. This was not like anything we're used to. Rains have been um, uh, pretty present the last few weeks, and then the other night it just gushed. This was just too much water. What are you hearing from your neighbors? Do they have power? Do you have water? Do you have what you need? Uh, I think some people in town have water. I don't. Some people have lost power. Some people have lost internet. You know, I've got my grandchildren and my six-year-old with me, and it's like if the bacon and ice cream sprinkles hold out, then I think we'll survive. (laughs) Your crew will be all right. Yes, that's right. I gather, I mean, for local businesses, it must be beyond a mess. We we, we spoke this morning uh, with the owner of the Kentucky Mist Distillery there in Whitesburg. This is Colin Fultz. He said he's at the distillery, and it's just mud everywhere that he's trying to clean up. Yeah, there's mud. Um, All those places right along the river, like the Moonshine Distillery, took it rough. And, you know, there are a lot of people who live in in flatter ground, and the water came up so quick. Uh, Some people got evacuated in the middle of the night. Some people didn't get out. When the flood comes, there's no uh, talking to it. No talking to it. Yeah. This rough end, when it's over, what are you going to do? You you got to grab a shovel, help people out best you can. You know, I was in kindergarten with the 1957 flood hit hazard. That was the record flood here in Whitesburg, and this one beat it by about six feet. And uh, I, I remember being out in the yard and watching my grandmother and float by in a canoe uh, because her car flooded out and she she had a bag of groceries in her lap and she waved at me and I waved at her and that's like I was five years old and I've never been able to uh, let go of that image you know uh, it's just crazy things happen when the water gets up and and you know when there's loss of life you think in Kentucky we had uh, terrible tornadoes in the west and now this it's like you wonder when it's going to start raining frogs. One other place to ask you about an institution there in Whitesburg, which is Apple Shop, the media and arts and education center that, that documents Appalachia, that has these incredible archives about Appalachia. Do you have any idea how they're doing? Did they survive the flood? Uh, my wife works there, and I worked there for 25 years. I think that they took it pretty hard. The on-air studios, the theater got washed away. I think you know, the building held up. Um, the archive, which is really precious cargo, I think they got, I heard that they got most of the stuff to higher ground, but that's, um, you know, that's, that's the discourse of Appalachia. That's, um, those are the stories of miners and quilters and people who have, um, um, built this place and learned the lessons, uh, the hard way in, and it's really important information, and it's um, it's a treasure. It sounds like y'all have been through this many times, too many times. Is there something the community does to, to come together, to help each other out? Well, I mean, in Appalachia, just like in a lot of rural communities and a lot of urban communities, you know, um, what you got to each other. It's not like... Um, there's going to be a grant or an investment that changes the prospects of helping your neighbor out. And sometimes it feels bleak, but once you, once you start 
uh, lifting a few loads and, you know, it's part of something. Well, Mr. Davis, I'm glad you're safe. I'm glad your family's safe. And I appreciate your taking the time uh, to speak with us today. Thank you. Yeah, uh, no sweat. Appreciate it. That's D. Davis on the line there from Whitesburg, Kentucky. Something surprising happened in Washington this week. The Democrats' agenda that looked stalled from the outside got a major boost with a deal between West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on what they are calling the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. For President Biden and Democrats, this badly needed good news comes with not much time before this fall's midterm elections. So is there still time for things to turn around for the president and his party? We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hi, Tam. Hi, Juana. Tam, it has been a really busy week at the White House. Why don't you just start by telling us what happened? It started with the president stuck at home, stuck in the residence with COVID, but then things started to turn around. By midweek, he had tested negative. And now I get to go back to the Oval Office. Thank you all very much. Then the bipartisan Chips and Science Bill passed the Senate. By the end of the week, it had passed the House, too. And in the middle there, all of a sudden, Manchin and Schumer announced this deal on this big piece of legislation that includes reducing Obamacare premiums, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, and a huge investment in clean energy, paid for in part by tax changes for the wealthy and businesses. Now, we should say that this has to be passed with Democratic votes alone, and, you know, it's not done until it's done. The Democrats have the narrowest of margins, but even just being able to announce a deal was quite a breakthrough, given the last year of back and forth and will they or won't they and winnowing of the ambitions of this plan. I think a lot of people were surprised by the timing here. I follow Capitol Hill pretty closely, and I certainly wasn't expecting this. Talk to us a little bit more about how this happened. Yeah, it looked very dead. So this was initially called Build Back Better, and it was President Biden's big, huge social spending initiative. The most recent that anyone had really heard was that Senator Joe Manchin had cold feet about rising inflation. Then all of a sudden, this deal was announced and it had a new name, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. President Biden described it yesterday as a historic agreement to fight inflation and lower costs for American families. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Some of you will see a lot of similarities between the beginning of the Build Back Better initiative. It's not all of it, but we've moved a long way. I am curious, Tam, then, was this a surprise to the White House or how involved was the president? Well, the president wasn't involved at all, at least not directly. That's what Senator Joe Manchin told Talkline in West Virginia. I was not going to bring the president in. I didn't think it was fair to bring him in. Uh, and and uh, this thing could very well could not have happened at all. Now, White House staff continued to stay in touch with Manchin's team. And, you know, for the president, it doesn't really matter if he had his sleeves rolled up doing the negotiating or whether Senate Democrats came up with a deal that happens to give him a vast majority of the things that he had been talking about in recent months, and including these climate provisions, which pencil out at about two thirds of what he had been asking for since the beginning. And it strikes me, Tam, a lot of this is what President Biden campaigned on when he was candidate Biden. So it makes me wonder about the politics and what this could mean for Democrats who are heading into the November election cycle soon. 
President Biden's approval rating is very much underwater. Part of his problem, though, is Democratic frustration that he and Democrats in Congress were not able to do some of the things that he promised. Well, this would amount to him and Democrats in Congress doing some of what had been promised in the campaign. So that might relieve some of that pressure. And also the one really big dark spot on the week for the president was these new GDP numbers that came out showing two quarters in a row of economic contraction. Whether you call it a recession or not, people are worried about the economy. They feel very uncomfortable with the amount that prices have risen. And for the president and for Democrats to be able to get out there on the campaign trail and in ads and say, we know you're worried about inflation. Well, guess what? We've got something to address that. Can't hurt. That's NPR's Tamara Keith covering the White House. Thank you. You're welcome. Here's an idea for this Saturday night. Put down your phone, go outside, and look up. That is because three different meteor showers will be happening at once. The Southern Delta Aquarids, the Perseids, and the Alpha Capricornids. As a reminder, these celestial shows happen when the Earth sails through the orbits of comets. And those comets leave behind dusty, dirty trails of debris. Then when that dirt slams into the Earth's atmosphere, it heats up and produces a flash of light. Now, you do not need any fancy equipment to see this show, but you'll need to get as far away from human lights as possible. If getting out of town isn't in the cards, maybe make a pact with your neighbors, keep the lights off. It takes time for your eyes to adjust to the dark. Now, astronomers are not sure how many shooting stars we might see as these three showers overlap, but they say you've got to be patient. This is a quieter spectacle than the flashbang light show you saw on the 4th of July. So grab a blanket, find a good spot, and start counting. Hey, don't forget to make a wish. Oh, never. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, wish right now. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered in Canada this week, Pope Francis apologized for the church after years of allegations of abuse and neglect at residential boarding schools for Indigenous people. That story is just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Make it three straight days of solid gains on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly 1%, or 316 points, to close at 32,845. S&P rose nearly 1.5% to end the session at 4130. The Nasdaq jumped close to 2% to finish the month at 12,000. 391. Springfield-based utility Eversource may cash out on its roughly $3 billion stake in wind energy. Eversource co-owns three turbine projects along the New England coast. It also shares lease rights for nearly 200,000 offshore acres yet to be developed. The company says new federal energy, clean energy initiatives mean its assets should command top dollar in a potential sale. Eversource aims to make a decision on the matter by the year's end. It's 419. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
Could have some rain overnight tonight, down around 68 for a low. Then for tomorrow, clouds early, sunshine burns through. Windy and pretty warm, about 86. Sunday should be mostly sunny, highs around 87. 88 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. All this week, Pope Francis has been in Canada on what he calls a pilgrimage of penance. He's been going around the country to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system. This was a program funded by the Canadian government and administered by the Catholic Church that was aimed at erasing the culture and language of Indigenous people. I have come to your native lands to tell you in person of my sorrow, to implore God's forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation. This apology from Pope Francis this week comes after years of allegations detailing abuse and neglect at these residential boarding schools. Stephanie Scott is a member of the Anishinaabe from Rosso River First Nation. She's also the executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, which gathers and preserves the testimony of survivors. She was at the Pope's speech in Musquachese, Alberta, earlier this week, and she spoke with me from Winnipeg, Canada, Treaty 1 territory, and she started by telling me about a very important item, the National Student Memorial Register. We wanted to bring a National Student Memorial Register. And what that is, is it's a 50 meter long red cloth that holds the names of 4,120 children that died in residential school. And so it's a very powerful symbol of, you know, the harms that happened to the little ones that attended those schools and didn't return. And when we got there, it was very... um, you know, haphazard in in the way that they were going to honor and respect these children. The Pope, in the end, did up having a private witness. He blessed the cloth. He kissed the cloth. And for the survivors and the NCTR staff and me, that was a moment um, to recognize that he actually had paid attention to all the children that had died in those schools. And, And for me, as a daughter of a residential school, survivor, that's an opportunity and one step towards reconciliation. Do you feel that others felt similarly, like when they listened to his remarks, when they met with him? I mean, what are you hearing from your friends, other members of Indigenous communities, about how they personally received this apology? It was a mixed reaction. Even though they had heard and witnessed his apology, Um, They were very emotional about it. It was very heavy. We also traveled with one of our elders who's a survivor who was actually fathered by a priest in the residential school. So so people weren't readily to accept. Um, You know, he said many welcome things, but I was struck by what he didn't say. 
Really? Like what? What what did you want him to say that he did not? Well, I think it was really important that, you know, they acknowledge the harms that had been done, that they should have acknowledged the children that had died, that had suffered horrific physical and sexual abuse, and the fact that they were going to make reparations. And, and those are things in regard to returning land, you know, really supporting the healing. And sometimes that is financially because it's going to take a lot of resources to support community members on their path to healing. I know that he was making a commitment in order to support that, but it really needs to have actions. Right. So that's really what the survivors that we were with were looking for. May I ask, as you've been working to document these stories from survivors, what has been the most challenging part of that work for you personally? For me personally, um, I'll tell you a little bit about my history just so you can, can mm-hmm. understand. Um, I was born and raised here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My mother is a residential school survivor. She was running away back and forth from the schools, uh, became pregnant, you know, the, the school sent her home to her community. She was giving birth to me, went to the children's hospital. Back then, they were still automatically taking children away. So she held me once as a young mother at the age of 16 years old, you know, and I was automatically put into the system, the child welfare system, because that's what was happening to Indigenous children back then. So I didn't see her again until I was 28 years of age. So I am driven personally, professionally, in order to make this change, because I think as a young child, what that would mean to her, and it was devastating to her, you know, she had a lot of mental health challenges, as did I, because you grow up without your community, you grow up without the lack of understanding, without the power of your people, and, and, you know, the strength that comes from your community, your language, your ceremonies, your traditions... Is there a story that has stayed with you, a particular story? We were out in in Sioux Lookout, and there was a granny that came to me that was about 70 years of age. And she sat down with me, and she said that when she was a child, they were about six and seven years old, her and her friend, and they hated the schools. They wanted to run away from the school because of the abuse and harms that they were suffering. And so these two little girls hid clothing outside of the school in the bush in order to run away from the school in order to make it home they put on those clothes and they ran far away from the school and made it home and I thought you know six and seven those are the age of my grandchildren and I thought how powerful they were in order to hide clothing in the dead of winter to get home to their family that loved them because that's where they felt safe. The courage that it took to do that and the intelligence of those young Mm -hmm. children, that's really what stuck with me. And I think that, you know, everyone that was trying to run away and and made it home from those schools, more power to them because they were running for a reason. And those are the stories that we can't forget. Well, for people outside Canada... Can you talk about why gathering and archiving these records that you're collecting, this testimony, why it is so important? To have the personal survivor oral history and record in the archive paired with records, paired with community narratives is essential to understanding the truth. 
and we still do not have the full truth of what happened in Canada to all those 150,000 children that attended the schools. You know, records were destroyed. Um, we're losing our elders and survivors and knowledge keepers at a, a very fast pace. So we need the understanding from their perspective what really happened. And they were children. Like, we can't forget those were children that were in those schools. Um, you know, understanding the illness, the malnutrition, the experiments. It's all important to preserving the truth of residential schools so that in the hopes that it can never happen again. No matter where I was in this country and when we were, you know, working with survivors in order to share their statements, they said, I, I'm telling you this because I never want this to happen again. So we've got, you know, decades of work to do and we're here to do that work for them and, and we'll continue to do it and I'll continue to do it until I can no longer, you know, preserve that experience. Stephanie Scott is the executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Thank you very much for sharing this time with us. Miigwech, thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, millions of working-age Americans are suffering from long COVID, which makes it tough to hold a job. When my fever gets up past a certain point, my mood changes and all the cognitive stuff just like my brain feels like goo. More on the struggles COVID long haulers face on the job coming up. In the forecast, lovely today. Pretty hot. It's fallen now to 88 degrees. Tonight should get down to the upper 60s. Maybe some showers tonight and early tomorrow. And for the weekend, sunshine gradually working its way in tomorrow. Mostly sunny skies on Sunday. Daytime highs should be about 86 degrees both days. Sox homestand continues this week with the Milwaukee Bucks coming to town. Austin Davis will make his third career start tonight for Boston. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House is preparing to take up legislation today that would reinstate a ban on assault-style weapons. Speaking ahead of the vote and on the heels of a congressional report detailing the marketing strategies used by the gun industry to sell the weapons, Speaker Nancy Pelosi once again took aim. Little children, toddlers, learning how to use an assault weapon smaller assault weapons, but a gun like mommy and daddy, but getting their muscles ready to be able to use it. Is that sick? If passed in the House, the bill faces a tough road in the evenly divided Senate, where Republicans overwhelmingly oppose such a ban and have the power to block it. A law banning assault-style weapons expired in 2004. The Missouri region is recovering after days of record rainfall. Sarah Fenton of St. Louis Public Radio reports flash flooding devastated many parts of the city, stranding drivers for hours Thursday night. 
Some areas of the metro region received between 1 and 2 inches of rain, but just inches of rain caused roads and buildings to fill up with water. Dozens of cars were stranded and major thoroughfares were closed due to flooding just before the evening commute. Lydia Jaja of the National Weather Service says the ground was already completely saturated with water from the storms earlier this week. That ground, since it rained so heavily Tuesday, just can't hold as much rain as it could have. Storms dumped more than nine inches of rain on St. Louis Tuesday, the most in the region's history. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Fenton in St. Louis. Stocks closed higher today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 315 points. The Nasdaq Composite also traded higher, up to 28. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA riders are being bussed along part of the Green Line this afternoon. The MBTA is blaming what it calls a power problem for a temporary halt to regular service on the Green Line E branch. Buses are running in place of trolleys between Brigham Circle and Heath Street. The Federal Transit Administration is ordering some MBTA workers to attend a safety briefing in response to incidents involving three runaway trains since May. The latest happened Monday at Braintree Station on the Red Line. Nobody was hurt. However, the FTA calls the incidents exceptionally dangerous. The order goes into effect after midnight tonight and applies to any worker who moves train cars in yards or in maintenance shops. The T says the sessions will last about 15 minutes at the start of each worker's shift and expects little disruption to T service. There are more abortion rights protections now in Massachusetts. Today, Governor Charlie Baker signed a bill into law that strengthens reproductive health care access to all residents. Providers and patients who receive abortion care in the state will be protected from being prosecuted or sued by states that have abortion bans after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Becca Hart Holder of Reproductive Equity Now supports the law. Laws making access easier and also investments in state dollars to ensure that people can get access to the care they need. That's huge. The new law includes language that expands when an abortion can be performed after 24 weeks of pregnancy. And a vote is expected soon on a bill to help military families in Massachusetts. It requires the state to contact members of the National Guard who served in Afghanistan and may have been exposed to burn pits. Westfield Senator John Velas has served in Afghanistan. He says the bill will get local military into a Veterans Affairs Registry. So when, God forbid, if they get some bad news about exposure to burn pits, they're in that registry so they can be compensated in a timely fashion and can avoid what our friends from Vietnam had to go through at Agent Orange. The legislation also will make it easier for military spouses to transfer their professional work licenses to Massachusetts, and it extends in-state tuition at public colleges and universities for members of the military stationed here and for their families. It's 435. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. No rest for the Red Sox. Tonight they start up a three-game series with the Milwaukee Brewers, 7-10 start time. Light breezes making today a little bit more tolerable. Tonight, clouds move in, about 68 for a low. For tomorrow, sunshine eventually with highs about 86. Lots of sunshine Sunday, highs about 87. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A 
iku.com. And from Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This week, the last democracy to emerge from the Arab Spring came to a sputtering end. Voters in Tunisia passed a constitutional referendum giving President Kais Saeed near-total power, weakening an already weak parliament and sidelining the judiciary. And it is a symbolic end to the Arab Spring, the pro-democracy movement that was sparked in Tunisia itself more than a decade ago. I'm joined now by Shadi Hamid, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who is tracking this. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. So speak to the significance of this moment and of it happening in Tunisia where the whole Arab Spring began. Yeah, sure. Well, July 25th was the day Tunisian democracy died. This referendum entrenches the president's one-man rule. So where we might have been able to speak about Tunisia as a democracy before, we can now no longer do that. So in that sense, obviously a dark day for Tunisians, but also the Middle East and, you know, for the democratic idea more generally. And I suppose we should note that on July 25th of last year, President Saeed had already suspended parliament, dismissed the prime minister. He he has been consolidating power over the last year already. Yeah, so about a year ago, that's when Kai Saeed made his move. That's when this slow motion coup started. There has been no parliament. There have been no checks on his power. And it has, in effect, been a dictatorship. But there was hope up until this moment that somehow the worst could be avoided. But now the Constitution has passed, so it makes a lot of this official. So the one-man rule that he had been doing provisionally for the past year is now letter of law. Hmm. How is this playing in Tunisia? Do we know what where public opinion is on this? Yeah, so the referendum itself had low turnout. The official numbers are about 30%, but most of the opposition boycotted the referendum. And that was their objective to basically delegitimize the result. After Kai Saeed started his power grab last year, some Tunisian surveys put his approval rating at as high as 80%. There was overwhelming support for him in the beginning. Many Tunisians saw Kai Saeed as someone who would fix things on his own. And in that sense, Saeed was a self-styled populist, almost a bit of a Trumpian figure, if you will. For many Tunisians, a democratic transition was not something they loved because their lives didn't get better. The economy did not improve. So that's always the danger of revolutions. They raise expectations considerably. People think that once there's democracy, everything will work out and they expect their lives to improve immediately. That did not happen in Tunisia. So what that led to was a disillusionment with the idea of democracy. Last question, and and it's a big one, but just your top line thought in terms of how this bodes for the region. Because Tunisia, you know, after the Arab Spring, it had an extended experiment in democracy. They set up a new elected assembly. They have held elections, unlike other places after the Arab Spring, where democracy never really took root. How does this leave you feeling about the hope for democracy in the Arab world going forward? Well, this is why Tunisia was really important as an example. 
because as long as there was Tunisia, people could look at that and say, democracy is possible in the Arab world. They could also say that Islam and democracy can go together because there was an Islamist party in Nahda that was part of various coalition governments since the initial uprising in 2011. Anyone who's looking for a more positive future in the Arab world now has to look elsewhere, and most likely they have to look outside the region entirely. It's always good to have one positive example that you can point to, even if it's one out of 20-plus Arab countries. At least that's one. Right. But now it's zero. Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For months, a group of Michigan Republicans has been jockeying for the chance to face Governor Gretchen Whitmer in November's general election. From widespread scandal to the FBI arrest of a candidate, the race has seen a lot. And it all ends Tuesday with the state's primary election. Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network has more. In January, it was chiropractor Garrett Soldano who became the first Republican to file in the governor's race. Six months later, he's among five fighting to the end. He says he trusts the strategy that got him this far. We just continue to, to let our grassroots army do what they do best, um, and that's getting out there and have voter contacts. There were once 10 candidates, and everyone was new to running for office. That political inexperience may have added to a major shakeup of the field in late May. Election staff say five candidates, including some big spenders, didn't collect enough ballot signatures to make the ballot. Then Republican candidate Donna Brandenburg shared her anger at a May meeting. I find this process to be an arbitrary goat rodeo. It's a shame. Reports found a group of paid petitioners working across campaigns had faked thousands of signatures on the candidates' nominating paperwork. Businesswoman Tudor Dixon saw her poll numbers climb following the scandal. She has also racked up endorsements from well-known names in Republican politics, like the family of former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. You know, we've always planned to go around the state and meet people and gain support, gain supporters, and gain the resources to go out there and get our message broadcast louder, and that's what we've been doing, and I think that's what's behind it. Hard work. But businessman Kevin Rinke isn't so convinced. He's referred to Dixon as Governor Whitmer in sheep's clothing. She'll say or do anything for position. I'm a guy that's running to do the right things for the people of Michigan. This is public service for me. Largely self-funded, Rinke pitches himself as an outsider who will slash the personal income tax rate, raise literacy, and focus on election integrity. We can move Michigan forward by putting the people first. Democrats as well as Republicans. Rinky and Dixon have both seen relatively strong poll numbers lately, but recent polling also suggests a chunk of Republican voters are still undecided. Pam Dawson watched a Republican debate Wednesday night and says that could be due to the large field. They're all strong, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think they're trying to be a little bit more cautious. They want to make sure that they're going to get the one that's going to beat Whitmer. For Dawson, that's either Soldano or real estate agent Ryan Kelly. The latter saw name recognition spike after the FBI arrested him in June for misdemeanor charges associated with the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Kelly has pleaded not guilty. Despite Kelly's allegiance to the former president, Trump has not made an endorsement in this race. The candidates Soldano, Dixon, Rinky, Kelly, and Pastor Ralph Rebant have all taken similar stances, like wanting to lower taxes and opposing abortion. 
But pollster Richard Shuba says their ability to attract independent voters will be key to winning the general election against Governor Whitmer. He says two issues will likely dominate. We have to watch how is abortion impacting the vote versus how is inflation impacting the vote. And we don't know the answer to that yet. The Democratic Governors Association has already started running attack ads in the GOP primary. Michigan Republican Party spokesperson Gustavo Portella accuses Democrats of meddling. They're afraid of the message and they're afraid of the fact that people are going to have a choice this fall. Whoever wins the Republican nomination may have to get used to the pressure. Recent campaign finance reports show Governor Whitmer has millions to spend. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Maricopa County, Arizona, spent a lot of 2021 in the spotlight. State Senate Republicans spearheaded a deeply flawed review of the county's 2020 vote. Despite the review and false claims about the election, this year's primary on Tuesday will not look all that different for voters in Maricopa County. From member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Ben Giles reports. For the last two years, Arizona has been a hive of election denialism. The state made headlines for months thanks to the Senate's inept review of the Maricopa County election, which in fact confirmed Donald Trump lost the state. Despite that, lies about the 2020 vote still resonate with the state's Republican base. Just last week, Trump traveled to northern Arizona to stump for a slate of election-denying candidates. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being systematically destroyed because of it. The election, of course, was not stolen. And for Maricopa County voters, the 2022 election looks an awful lot like the one held two years ago. Yeah, for all the noise that has been made regarding election administration, from the user's perspective, it's going to look very similar to the 2020 experience. Republican Stephen Richer is the Maricopa County recorder. I think that we've had more scrutiny over the Maricopa County elections process than any jurisdiction in the United States. And, you know, that process has been found to not be fundamentally flawed. There are a few new wrinkles to the 2022 primary, like fewer drop boxes and more early vote centers. But all that's discretionary, small changes the counties can make at the local level. Most of the election is dictated by state law, like early ballots that were mailed to a majority of Maricopa County voters, same as they've been for decades. While there were bills introduced to get rid of the state's popular ballot-by-mail system, there were enough Republicans, like Richer and GOP County Supervisor Bill Gates, lobbying to stop them from becoming law. We are up against so many forces, so many leaders within the Republican Party here in Arizona and nationally who continue to spread this misinformation. But again, fortunately, we also have people who have stood up and supported our elections workers. Gates specifically credited House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who drew Trump's ire by rebuffing attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Bowers single-handedly torpedoed one far-reaching election bill. I think that that demonstrates a recognition that our system works, that all of this talk about problems in the system were political talk, but not reality. That reality is a testament to the work of officials like Ray Valenzuela and Scott Jarrett, the co-election directors in Maricopa County. Jarrett, hired in 2019, described the last two years as a trial by fire. After all that, how is Jarrett feeling now? Energized. I 
am looking forward to getting back to the nuts and bolts of administering elections. Valenzuela says the duo now spends more time proactively spreading good information to fight back against the bad. On a personal level, it's, it's difficult because we want the voter to have the accurate and most the best information possible to make not only their choice and participate in the process, but to know that, again, elections are safe, secure, and they have integrity. Both believe that with a successful 2022 election in hand, the county may be able to turn a corner heading into 2024. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up next on All Things Considered, accommodating employees who are struggling with long COVID. Also, a 14-year-old was doodling away on his iPad when a creature appeared. It is now the winning design of his county's I Voted sticker contest. Austin Davis takes them out tonight for the Red Sox in game one of their series with the Brewers. And in the forecast, sunny, breezy, and hot today. Clouds on the increase tonight, though, still breezy, falling to about 68 degrees, so a little bit more comfortable. There is the chance of some showers. And then tomorrow, cloudy to begin with, sunshine breaking through, highs about 86. Sunday, sunshine all day long, 87 for a high. 88 degrees now in Boston at 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 13th. Hunter Douglas automated PowerView shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And the ICA's free Thursday nights. Enjoy an evening of live music on the waterfront and free museum admission. Tickets at ICABoston.org. Billy Russo is essential to the Chicago White Sox. He's the team's interpreter. What if a player yells at an umpire in Spanish using choice words? If we say that, yes, I have to. I try to not add or take anything from what the players are saying. Also a Chinese rocket falling back to Earth, but where? Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Some 16 million working-age Americans currently have long COVID. That's according to the Census Bureau. And for many of them, the symptoms are so debilitating, they're unable to work or they're struggling to do the jobs they did before. And now, COVID long haulers are speaking out about what they need to stay employed. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. Georgia Linders got sick with COVID early in the pandemic. More than two years on, she continues to experience what are now commonly reported symptoms of long COVID. Her heart races at random times. She's often exhausted. She has digestive issues, and most days she runs a fever. Oh yeah, probably have a fever right now. I was going to check it. She whips out a digital thermometer. Well, 99 isn't that high. When my fever gets up past a certain point, my mood changes, and all the cognitive stuff just like my brain feels like goo. That's what happened when Linders went back to work for a few months in the spring and summer of 2020. Her job required her to be on the phone all day, coordinating with health clinics that service the military. It was a lot of multitasking, something she'd excelled at before COVID. After COVID, she had brain fog and fatigue. Her work suffered. 
That fall, she was put on probation and given 30 days to improve her performance. And I thought I improved, but my supervisor brought up my productivity, which was like a quarter of what my coworkers were doing. She felt demoralized. Her symptoms got worse. She decided to take medical leave, and six months later, she was terminated. She filed a discrimination complaint with the government, but it was dismissed. She could have sued, but she wasn't making enough money to hire a lawyer. Now she thinks back on what she should have pushed for. She was already working from home, but maybe she could have had a lighter workload. Maybe her supervisor could have held off on disciplinary action. You know, maybe I wouldn't have gotten as sick as I got because I wouldn't have been pushing myself to, to do the things that I knew I couldn't do, but I kept trying and trying. Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez of the University of Texas San Antonio has seen it before. If someone has to go back 100% when they start feeling a little bit better, they are going to crash and burn fast. The thing about long COVID, there are still so many unknowns. The symptoms are highly varied, and no one knows how long the symptoms will last. Gutierrez encounters the question all the time when she's filling out disability forms. How long do you expect this patient to be out? Like, this is a new condition. We don't know. The uncertainty complicates things for employers, too. Do you offer accommodations, like a flexible schedule or extended time off, or a less taxing role in another department? And if so, for how long? Roberta Echeverry has been fielding a lot of such questions lately. As a disability management specialist, she helps employers and employees find accommodations that work for everyone. With long COVID, it's challenging. This isn't a sprain or a strain where, you know, somebody turns an ankle and we know in X amount of months they're going to be at this point. Or somebody was helping move a patient and they hurt their back and they can't do that kind of work anymore. They need to do something else. Accommodations are supposed to help workers get on a path back, she says. But with long COVID, you don't know whether, say, three months of leave will help resolve symptoms or not. And for some employers, three months of leave is not viable. Now, companies don't have to approve accommodations that present an undue burden to their business. But Echeverry urges her clients to try to find something that works. You have to show that you're actually not discriminating, right? That you know what the law is, that you're willing to give a good faith effort. Georgia Linders believes her employer did not make a good faith effort, but she's also tried to put herself in their shoes. I understand it from a business point of view. Like, why would you want to keep an employee that all of a sudden can only do a fraction of what they could do before? After a long process, she's now getting Social Security disability insurance. She spends what energy she has on advocacy, helping other long haulers stay employed. It helps her feel like she's contributing something to society, even if it's far from the life she wanted. You know, I don't want to be disabled. I don't want to be taking money from the government. I'm only 45. I was going to at least work another 20 years. Now her work is all about getting by one day at a time. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Hudson Rowan never really considered himself an artist. But I might start looking into it after the all the attention I've gotten from my recent sticker art. The 14-year-old's breakthrough piece? It's a crazy, bulging eyes, mangled hair, looking off into the distance, crazy, like, spider-like robot legs shooting out of the sides. It kind of gives, like, a chaotic vibe when I see it. You see, Hudson Rowan's mother, Molly, asked if he wanted to enter the Ulster County, New York, I Voted sticker contest. I mean, anything to boost voter participation, right? 
and the spider robot humanoid is what Rowan thought voters would want to display to flex that they had done their civic duty come November. I was just floored. I will never forget when I saw it. That's Ashley Dittis. She's a commissioner of the Ulster County Board of Elections. I instantly smiled and I had to show it to people. I just couldn't keep it to myself. Dittis says most of the submissions she's seen included red, white, and blue, maybe images of mountains to represent their county in the Catskills, but she has never seen anything like this. Um, it was 420 when I saw it, so at first I was like, is this... Is this a trick? <laughs> she says after Rowan's design became a finalist, it went viral on social media, and he has the votes on the county website to prove it. I mean, we only have 125,000 voters. There's 180,000 residents. People who don't live there probably started voting too, and by the end, Rowan's submission got nearly 230,000 votes. That is 94% of the total. And today, he was officially declared the winner of the contest. And so it certainly has gone beyond the scope of Ulster County. But um, that's great because the more people that are looking and exploring voting and what their options are, not just New York State residents, but all over the place, that's how we get democracy to thrive. Dittis has received so many calls about the sticker, even from people asking about purchasing merch with Rowan's creature on it. We've heard from our voters, and really from people all over the country. It hits a nerve. It makes people on both sides of the aisle feel like, yep, this is what voting is like. This is what participating in democracy looks like in 2022. And Rowan has heard similar things from his growing following online. When people go to vote, it's a very chaotic, everything's going on at once, all that in all the world right now, and like COVID, and then the wars going on, and then all the gun violence, politics right now. I don't know, I feel like that picture kind of represents it. Rowan may not have intended to capture the entire state of the world in his I Voted sticker design, but he is thrilled that starting conversations about an institution he considers essential. So you lucky voters in Ulster County, you better clear your calendars for Election Day on November 8th and bring an extra donut or two for the poll workers to see if you can get more than one sticker. Everyone needs to vote. And if people just stop voting, thinking their vote doesn't matter, if hundreds of thousands of people don't do that, then it's, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> Hudson Rowan, artist, philosopher, and patriot. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering.
This is WBUR, holding steady at 88 degrees in the Boston area. Tonight should get down to the upper 60s, maybe some showers tonight and early tomorrow. For the weekend, sunshine gradually working its way in tomorrow, mostly sunny skies on Sunday. Daytime highs should be about 86 degrees both days. Again, 88 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cases of monkeypox in the U.S. are surging, though doctors say it is not easily transmitted in the way COVID was. This isn't casual contact. The data is pretty clear. This requires pretty close, intimate skin-to-skin contact with somebody who's infected. Still, the window to contain the outbreak may be closing. It's Friday, July 29th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, 28 women in Indiana have filed federal lawsuits alleging that they were raped or assaulted last year while imprisoned. A lot of them are still experiencing nightmares and uh, they're fearful of authority and it's really been a, a very traumatic experience for these women. We'll follow their cases coming up. Also, actor Will Smith has posted a video apology to actor-comedian Chris Rock for striking him during the Oscars and why reports of the death of the Choco Taco ice cream treat may be greatly exaggerated. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Heavy rain is causing catastrophic flooding in Kentucky and St. Louis. In Kentucky alone, the death toll from flooding has now risen to 16 as raging floodwaters hit the eastern part of the state. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports climate change makes such disasters more likely. As the earth gets hotter, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. That means when it rains, it rains harder. Scientists see this happening in real time. Heavy rain is getting more common across the U.S. In some places, the amount of rain that falls in the biggest storms has increased more than 50 percent since the 1950s. And when a lot of rain falls in a short period of time, especially in a hilly area, it can cause dangerous flash floods. Water rolls downhill, gathering speed and power, and sweeping away cars, houses, and people. There are ways to make such floods less dangerous. Retention ponds, marshy areas, and other unpaved surfaces can help soak up excess water and slow down floods. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Will she or won't she make a stop in Taiwan? At the moment, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi isn't saying, but tensions have been rising between the U.S. and China over the prospect of an official visit during the Speaker's upcoming Asia trip. Tensions around Taiwan were a dominant topic yesterday during a call between President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. China has stepped up military activity around Taiwan as it seeks to pressure the democratically elected government there to accept Chinese sovereignty. However, there is no sign in action is imminent. The White House has refused to comment on reports Pelosi will visit Taiwan during her trip. The Justice Department says a Russian national has been indicted for allegedly orchestrating a long-running illegal influence campaign in the U.S. Zenpiro's Ryan Lucas reports reported scheme used political groups to try to advance Russian interests. Alexander Yonov is charged with conspiring to have U.S. citizens act as illegal agents of the Russian government. 
According to the indictment, Yonov is the president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia, an organization that is bankrolled in part by the Kremlin. Prosecutors say Yonov worked with Russian intelligence officers to recruit members of U.S. political groups, including secessionist organizations in Florida and California. Yonov is accused of financing these groups, directing them to publish pro-Russian propaganda, including related to the ongoing war in Ukraine, all with the goal of sowing discord in the U.S. and advancing Russian interests. Yonov is not in American custody. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Perhaps not surprisingly, given the price of crude oil, the nation's major oil companies are awash in profits. Chevron, Exxon, and Shell, the three largest Western oil companies, sank for the second quarter. They banked a combined $46 billion in profits. A strong end of the trading month on Wall Street. The Dow was up 315 points today. The Nasdaq closed up 228 points. The S&P rose 57 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA riders are being bussed along parts of the Green Line E branch between Brigham Circle and Heath Street this afternoon. Trolley services shut down on that stretch between Mission Hill and Jamaica Plain. The MBTA blames a power problem that developed after smoke was seen coming from a manhole on Huntington Avenue earlier today. MBTA employees who work on disabled trains must attend a safety briefing before they can perform that kind of work. That's according to a new order from the Federal Transit Administration. It goes into effect just after midnight tonight. The immediate safety stand-down, as it's called, is being ordered after three trains since May have gotten loose and begun to roll in rail yards and maintenance facilities. The latest was Monday at Braintree Station on the Red Line. The T says it supports the Federal Transit Administration's order and its ongoing investigation. It expects the training will last 15 minutes and have little impact on service. State lawmakers still have a lot on their plate as they try to finish up major business before their formal session ends Sunday. Details from WBUR's Steve Brown. Still to be resolved is a $4.3 billion economic development bill that contains a billion dollars in one-time and permanent tax cuts. That bill also contains language that could include a Senate provision bringing back the so-called happy hours at bars and restaurants, although Governor Baker and the hospitality industry are cool to that idea. There's still no indication an agreement on sports betting is close. Both the House and Senate have strong disagreements over whether wagering on college sports should be allowed. The legislature may also have to deal with some concerns the governor has with a climate bill that's on his desk. He's expected to return that bill with amendments. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A Worcester Reservoir is back open about a week and a half after it was shut down because of an algae bloom. This morning, city officials reopened Coe's Reservoir after tests showed the water is safe again. The water had been off limits because of naturally occurring cyanobacteria that can make people and animals sick if they come into contact with it. 88 degrees in the Boston area, sunny, breezy, still hot this evening. Clouds on the increase tonight, still breezy, falling to about 68. There is the chance of some showers tonight. A nice weekend is on the way. Tomorrow could start up cloudy. The sun then should break through. Highs about 86. Sunday, sunshine to last the day, about 87 for a high. This is WBUR. It's 506. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been more than two months since the first case of monkeypox was detected in the U.S. At the time, many health officials thought the country had a chance to control, even eliminate the disease. That didn't happen. On the contrary, cases have kept rising. And now there's increasing concern that the window of opportunity to contain the outbreak is closing. Well, to talk this through, I'm joined by two NPR health correspondents, Ping Huang and Michaeline Duclef. Hi, team. Hello, Louise. All right, Michaeline, a question or two to you first. When I say cases are rising, how fast, how quickly is the outbreak growing? Yeah, so right now in the U.S., the outbreak is growing exponentially, which means the country is reporting more and more new cases each week. Now, the number of cases is still quite low. We have about 5,000 cases detected so far, but that number is doubling each week, and that shows that the outbreak isn't under control. And if this trend continues, we could reach 10,000 cases quite quickly and many more by the fall. And I can't help but think back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and there was so much confusion about how it was spreading. We were all Clorox wiping our groceries and our mail, and it was it was a while before we realized that wasn't really necessary. With monkeypox, do we have a better handle on exactly how people are getting it? Yes, I, I think in general, we do have a better handle on it. There are a few gaps in, the, in our knowledge, but so far, we do know how the virus is primarily spreading, and that's through physical contact during sex. A study came out recently in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at about 500 cases of monkeypox in the U.S. and other countries, and in 95% of cases, the person caught it through contact during sex. Almost all those cases were in men who have sex with men and with multiple partners. They had an average of five different partners in a three-month period. And so far, this is also the general pattern that we're seeing in the U.S. And that New England Journal of Medicine study that you cited that said 95% of cases, the person caught it through sexual contact, that leaves some other cases, uh, you know, other ways that monkeypox might spread, maybe from, I don't know, breathing it, touching contaminated objects. Should we be worried about that? Yes. Yeah, so I think monkeypox can also definitely spread within a household. That is really true. And it can spread through contaminated sheets or towels. Um, you know, it can also spread by being up close with somebody face to face for a long period of time. So that's through saliva, like when someone's coughing or sneezing. But to be really clear here, monkeypox doesn't spread easily these ways. In fact, Dr. Ali Khan at the University of Nebraska Medical Center says most people don't need to worry about catching monkeypox in regular public places. Do not go wash your vegetables because somebody with, you know, monkeypox may have touched, you know, the apples. So this isn't, I went to the restaurant and got infected, or, you know, this isn't casual contact. The data is pretty clear. This requires pretty close, intimate, skin-to-skin contact with somebody who's infected. All right. So, Ping Huang, let me bring you in here because you have been reporting on the Biden administration's response. Given that we seem to know so much more about how this is spread than we did in the early stages of the COVID pandemic, why is the U.S. struggling to get it under control? I mean, I think that's a really fair question. You know, from the get-go, there have been concerns that the U.S. has been slow to act and starting off with a more wait-and-see approach. You know, testing and treatments were initially hard to get. Data has been scarce and scattered. And even now with the vaccine rollout, you know, the federal government is now making more than a million vaccines available. But they can't tell us exactly how many people have been vaccinated or really how many people need to be vaccinated to get this outbreak in check. Dr. Melanie Thompson is a longtime HIV physician in Atlanta, and she says one of her patients summed it up like this. It feels like it's the beginning of AIDS in the early years. 
nobody's ready, nobody wants to treat you, and nobody knows where to go to get help. Now, over the past few weeks, some of these issues with access to testing and treatments have started to improve, especially in places like New York and San Francisco, where there have been a lot of cases. But a lot of this reminds people of the same problems we had with COVID. You know, the U.S. has this patchwork public health system, and the states and federal governments have trouble working together, and it shows. It sounds like you're saying we haven't learned some of the lessons we should have uh, and wish we had from these last few years. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, after all, the basic tools for ending an outbreak are the same ones that have been used for centuries. But health experts say the same mistakes are repeated over and over because they're caused by old problems that haven't been fixed. Here's Dr. Thompson from Atlanta again. For one thing, we don't have a unified health system. So many people don't have access to routine health care. Our public health systems have been underfunded for decades and they have been decimated by COVID. So instead of being more prepared at this particular moment, the system is more depleted and broken than it was even before the pandemic. Oh, gosh. Um, A final question, I guess, to both of you, Michael and you first, which is, you know, with COVID, we are, I think, coming to an acceptance that the virus is here to stay, that we're never going to stamp out every case. It's early days for monkeypox in the U.S., but does it seem like that will be the case for monkeypox as well? You know, unfortunately, I think our window of opportunity might have already closed with monkeypox or is closing very quickly. I think the problem is, is that we are still playing catch up with this virus. We don't have a good grasp on how big this outbreak is and where transmission is actually occurring. Vaccines have been extremely slow to roll out. Several cities are giving only one dose right now instead of two doses because the supply is so low. And if even if there were enough doses right now, we don't know how well the vaccine will stop transmission. Okay, I mean, this is Ping here. Um, I'll just jump in and say that all of this is true, but I actually have some hope. You know, we have been talking about how case counts are going up, but monkeypox doesn't spread as fast as COVID, and we already have vaccines and antivirals against it. So the best case scenario here is that the vaccines are highly effective and they reach the people at risk. We also still don't know how well this virus will spread in the broader population, so it might actually not be contagious enough to really sustain a much larger outbreak. And you know, Mayor Louise, like what's at stake here is is actually pretty big. You know, if we don't stop this in the next few months, we could have a whole new disease on our hands to deal with. All right. A sobering update there from NPR health correspondents Michaeline Duclef and Ping Huang. Thank you both very much for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Investigations into former President Trump are underway here in Washington, D.C. and in New York. But there is another probe that seems to be accelerating in Atlanta. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is investigating whether Trump and his allies committed crimes when they tried to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports. A few months before Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in Georgia, Fonnie Willis claimed an election victory of her own. My career has taught me no matter the political pressure, just do what's right. Willis unseated her old boss to become Fulton County's first female district attorney. And no matter if you are at the state capitol or the slums, you will be held accountable if you commit a crime in my community. Now, Willis is helming a criminal investigation that may entangle a former president. The DA has two smoking guns 
in her hands. That's Norm Eisen with the Brookings Institution, who served as special counsel during Trump's first impeachment. The smoking guns he's talking about? One is a phone call when Trump pushed Georgia's Secretary of State to find him votes. The other, a slate of fake Georgia electors for Trump. Those two pieces of devastating evidence and the context lead to a series of Georgia crimes. Eisen says the possible crimes tightly match specific Georgia laws, like criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. He also thinks Willis may be more free than the Justice Department to charge a former president. She's not in D.C. She's not a part of the Biden administration. She has more distance. Don Samuel, an Atlanta defense attorney representing the Georgia legislature in the proceedings, is skeptical of Fulton County's investigation. He says the case is far from a sure bet, and meanwhile, it's sponging resources from a district attorney's office already backlogged with violent crime cases. When you take one case and say this is going to dominate our judicial system for weeks or months or a year, it's just a political decision she needs to make. Is it worth it? Willis is no stranger to high-stakes cases. She first made her name prosecuting an Atlanta public school's cheating scandal, winning 11 convictions. You know, listen, man, she dives right into the deep end. Her co-prosecutor back then, Clint Rucker, says the high visibility and controversy the case inflamed all prepared her for this moment. Willis has been condemned by Trump and has faced threats. If you've gotten one shot when you go into the doctor, you know what it feels like to take a shot. So if you have to take two or three more, you can handle it. Still, Willis has made some mistakes. In June, she hosted a political fundraiser for the opponent of one of the fake electors her investigation was targeting. A judge disqualified Willis's office from prosecuting him. I guess she's learning to be more comfortable in that driver's seat. Every now and then, you know, you may get a little close to the edge. And hopefully you've got an alarm that goes beep, 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 beep to tell you to bring it back to the center. And I think she will. The investigation isn't expected to conclude by the November election. Even if a grand jury decides to indict Trump or his allies, Samuel questions whether going to trial in Georgia will be worth the cost. Twelve jurors are going to make a decision. Twelve jurors. And I'm not sure the people all across the country are going to say, well, that's solid. That's not the way we're going to be able to resolve this monumental dispute that is dividing our country right now. Eisen disagrees. We've just suffered through one of the greatest assaults on our democracy. It's not only about accountability for what happened before, but we will be defending our democracy going forward. Whether to prosecute Trump or his allies will likely be the biggest decision of Willis's career and a pivotal moment for the country. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, 28 women at an Indiana jail have filed lawsuits alleging they were assaulted and at least two of them raped when male detainees paid an officer for access to their cells. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900.
and Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org. Make it three straight days of solid gains on Wall Street. The Dow rose nearly 1%, 316 points, to close at 32,845. S&P rose nearly 1.5% to end the session at 4130. The Nasdaq jumped close to 2% to finish the month at 12,391. Cambridge-based Moderna is moving a step closer to delivering COVID-19 booster shots that target the highly transmissible Omicron variant. The White House announced the agreement with the drug maker today. It said it will pay Moderna $1.7 billion for 66 million doses of the booster under development. Pfizer received a similar contract last month. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and kid-friendly, personalized service where families can relax in one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. And Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at PACASO.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. Light breezes are making the heat a little bit more tolerable today. Tonight, clouds move in. Temperatures pull back to about 68. Tomorrow and Sunday, a little bit cooler than today, about 86 degrees both days. Clouds early tomorrow, then sunshine. Sunday, sunny all day long. 88 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The superstar actor Will Smith has apologized again to Chris Rock, and this time he was looking into a camera. Chris, I apologize to you. Uh, My behavior was unacceptable, and I'm here whenever you're ready to talk. You may recall Smith slapped Rock at the Academy Awards after a tough joke about Smith's wife. NPR TV critic Eric Dagens has been following all of this, and he's a little skeptical about this latest move. Hi, Eric. Hi. Eric, I have watched the video, but give us some backstory. Do we know why Will Smith released this video today? Well, I haven't heard much of a reason for it. Um, The video was released to social media earlier today, and it shows Smith sitting in a room saying that he wanted to answer fair questions from the public. And those questions included, why didn't you apologize to Chris Rock in your Oscar speech? And Smith says that his head was in a fog. And did his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, tell him to go after Rock? And Smith says he decided that on his own. Uh, Smith says he's been thinking about it and he wanted to speak up. Uh, We've got another clip. Let's check it out. I spent the last three months understanding the nuances and and the complexities of what happened. There is no part of me that thinks that was the right way to behave in that moment. 
And, you know, that might be a response to those who tried to justify Smith's behavior by saying he was somehow defending his family. Do you think this will help Will Smith regain some of the shine he lost among some fans since all of this happened? I actually think so. Um, Will Smith's always been this incredibly likable and charismatic performer. And now he can say that he's apologized directly to the person he slapped. He's apologized to his family and anyone who might have been indirectly hurt by his actions. He's resigned from the Oscars Academy and he's been banned from their functions for 10 years. But Eric, you have said you're skeptical about this. Do you think Will Smith has done enough? Well, this, this is kind of a complex idea, but it's not about doing enough. I think it's about correcting what you actually did wrong. Now, first, I think in a way, both Smith and the Oscar Academy missed their moment. The Academy should have ejected Smith the minute he assaulted Rock, and Smith himself should have apologized to Chris Rock, removed himself from the ceremony before he was even given the Best Actor Oscar. Ultimately, this whole issue was created by Will Smith, putting his needs ahead of everyone else. And by releasing this video, Smith has once again Again, placed his need for public redemption ahead of the wishes of the guy he assaulted who said he didn't want to talk. Now, Chris Rock is in the middle of a stand comedy tour right now. This video is only going to increase the pressure for him to talk about an incident he's avoided speaking on mostly. And it makes me wonder if Will Smith really has learned the lessons he says he has in the months following this incident. All right. That's NPR TV critic Eric Dagens. Thanks for breaking it down for us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's head overseas. Ukraine says ships loaded with grain could set sail at any time. The country is reopening ports that have been closed since Russia invaded Ukraine more than five months ago. The reopening is part of deals brokered by the United Nations and Turkey to address a global food shortage. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from the port where the first ships are expected to depart. The low-key port city of Chornomorsk found itself in the spotlight today when President Volodymyr Zelensky and an entourage of politicians showed up to watch a ship being loaded with grain. As soon as they give us the signal, everything will happen. We hope that everyone keeps their promises and guarantees. We hope that both the people and the vessels will be safe. The largest Black Sea port, Odessa, which is a short drive from Chornomorsk, was hit by two Russian missiles almost a week ago. Natalia Seruchenko, who runs a news website about Chornomorsk, says residents are now especially on edge about safety. We feel like we are a target at any time and at any place in our city, she says. That's why we really need the security guarantees from our Western partners. Dimitro Barimov, deputy head of the Ukrainian Seaport Authority, says the cities along the Black Sea have updated evacuation plans to make sure port employees and citizens are safe. He adds that commercial vessels must also navigate Black Sea waters that have been mined by Ukraine to keep away Russian warships. But Barimov says he's optimistic this grain export deal will work. I think that our partners uh, will find the solution how to guarantee to the vessels safe passage to and out of our ports. And he doesn't just mean defending Ukraine from Russia. He says the dozens of ships waiting in ports to export Ukrainian grain will help save his country's economy, one that's been crushed by Russia's invasion. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Chornomorsk, Ukraine. 
There has been an outpouring of grief on the internet this week by lovers of a certain ice cream treat. The beloved Choco Taco has been discontinued. But as NPR's Wynn Davis reports, all hope might not be lost just yet. When Klondike announced the end of the Choco Taco on Monday, the company cited increased demand for its other products and encouraged people to try some of those instead. No thank you say fans like Carissa Prokop of Massachusetts. Choco tacos are perfect. She was a really big fan. Who doesn't like tacos to begin with? And then when they have ice cream and they're covered in chocolate and also with more chocolate on top. <laughs> Prokop is one of many people who lamented the loss of the frozen delicacy on Twitter. Drew Huang of California also joined in. Sorrow and frustration would be the two main emotions that I can think of. Uh, when I first heard the news. The last time Huang had a Choco Taco was a few months ago. He says he's still in mourning, but he is also looking up recipes to make his own at home. Do I trust myself to ever make a Choco Taco as good as an actual Choco Taco? No, but um, I mean, if I ever want to enjoy a Choco Taco ever again, it seems like it seems like that might be the only route from here on out. <laughs> but not everyone is ready to give up that easily. There is no other ice cream option in that truck, quite like a Choco Taco. That's Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit and the venture capital firm 776. He fondly recalls mowing lawns for money as a kid and spending it on Choco Tacos at the local swimming pool. I think like a lot of people, when I saw the news that it was uh, getting ended, I uh, reacted pretty strongly to it. That reaction? He tweeted at Unilever, the company that owns Klondike, and offered to buy the rights to the Choco Taco. He's totally serious, and he's even done some research on the product. Born in 1983, just like me. And so I feel a kind of kinship with this, uh, this treat. He wants to share his nostalgia for Choco Tacos with his four-year-old daughter, Olympia. Now that a lot of us have kids, you know, we want our kids to enjoy too, and... Olympia hasn't had a Choco Taco yet, so got to do something about it. Ohanian says he's spoken with Unilever, but he doesn't have any news to share just yet. We reached out to Unilever for comment, but haven't received a response. In the meantime, Ohanian is optimistic and holding out for the classic. It's the real deal or bust. There's no replicating it. So, though Choco Tacos may be gone for now, it's safe to say they'll never be forgotten. Wynn Davis, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox homestand continues this weekend with Milwaukee in town. Boston pitcher Austin Davis will make his third career start tonight. The Brewers will send out Brandon Woodruff, 7:10 start time. This is 90.9 WBUR, 88 degrees now at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance, with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. And Tapas 529 in Melrose, a neighborhood restaurant, a global vibe, private events welcome, Spanish and Mediterranean cuisine to sample and share. This is one of the biggest, sort of most telling stress tests that we've had in a long, long time that will show whether the Trump bump among Hispanics was a blip or whether it's something really lasting that we'll see in years and even decades to come. I'm Estet Herndon. That's today 
on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Emergency response teams are heading to eastern Kentucky to help with ongoing rescue efforts after catastrophic flooding. Governor Andy Beshear says President Biden has signed off on federal aid to assist with recovery efforts in more than a dozen counties. We asked for this last night. It came this morning. One of the fastest disaster declarations we've seen. At least 16 people are dead in Kentucky, and dozens have been reported missing. Rescuers have been working around the clock to reach areas where flooding has washed away roads or left them underwater after heavy rain devastated the region on Wednesday night. A week-long heat wave continues to scorch the Pacific Northwest. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Rebecca Ellis says health officials have reported four suspected heat-related deaths. Three of the deaths were in Multnomah County, the state's most populous county. One was further east in Umatilla County. Health officials say they may not know the final cause of death for several months. Multnomah County officials have been operating cooling shelters as one way for people to beat the heat. Jenny Carver is an emergency manager. She says they're ready to hand out whatever necessary to people who come in suffering from heat exhaustion. It looks like cooling kits and flip-flops and shorts and shirts and electrolyte packets and salty snacks. She says they'll keep the cooling shelters open as long as they're needed. Excessive heat warnings are in place through Saturday evening. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Ellis in Portland. The latest report from the Commerce Department shows Americans spent more than expected last month. Consumer spending, which accounts for more than two-thirds of U.S. economic activity, rose 1.1 percent in June. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 315 points. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Transit Administration is ordering what it calls an immediate safety stand-down at the MBTA starting at midnight tonight. The order means no worker can move train cars in yards or shops until they've attended a mandatory safety briefing. The agency is taking the action after three trains since May have gotten loose and begun to roll through rail yards and maintenance facilities. The latest happened Monday at Braintree Station on the Red Line. The FDA calls the incidents exceptionally dangerous. The T says it will make sure workers comply and says it anticipates little disruption to T service. President Biden is putting forth a prominent abortion rights attorney as his nominee for a Boston-based federal judgeship for the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals. Julie Rickelman recently represented the clinic at the center of the Dobbs Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade. Retired federal judge Nancy Gertner says a nominee's history of advocacy should not be a disqualifier. Everyone has to move to neutral on the bench. Everyone has to. It doesn't matter where you started. The issue is where you end up. President Biden today also announced two Massachusetts U.S. District Court nominees, one of whom would be the first Asian-American man to hold a federal judgeship in the state. Governor Charlie Baker has signed a new law aimed at expanding a program that offers students with intellectual disabilities access to college courses. WBR's Carrie Young has more. Fifteen public colleges in Massachusetts already offer non-degree programming for students with intellectual disabilities. The new law mandates that all 29 offer the services. Representative Sean Garbley says the legislation will also set up statewide standards for selecting students. This will really open doors. And to me, it's all about opportunity and it's all about the outcomes for these young people. 
According to the University of Massachusetts Institute for Community Inclusion, 64% of people with intellectual disabilities who attended these programs nationally have paid employment. That's compared to just 18% of those who didn't. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Plymouth's harbormaster is warning boaters to stay away from a group of juvenile humpback whales feeding in the area. Federal guidelines advise mariners to stay at least 100 yards away from the whales at all times. Harbormaster Chad Hunter says it's important to follow the guidance after a whale breached and landed on the bow of a fishing boat last weekend. I think it was kind of a reminder to people that it can be dangerous. Not only can it be uh, a safety issue for the whale, but that could have been a safety issue for the people on the boat as well. Hunter says the Coast Guard and the state environmental police are increasing patrols in the area to make sure no one is harassing the animals. In the forecast, clouds on the increase overnight tonight still breezy, falling to about 68, so a little bit more comfortable. Chance of some showers overnight tonight lasting until early tomorrow morning, and then we should eventually see sunshine tomorrow. Highs about 86. Sunday sunshine lasting all day long, 87 degrees for a high. The first few days of August could reach 90 degrees. 88 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. All summer long, we've been hearing about how she's fallen in love and quit her job and needs new motivation and is building up her new foundation. And today, we get to hear what Beyonce was talking about in that ubiquitous single. She has just released her new album, Renaissance. And music journalist Danielle Smith joins us. She is the author of the book, Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women in pop. Thanks for being here, Danielle. Thank you for having me, Juana. It's so great to talk to you. You too. All right, so that single, Break My Soul, and its samples and production, it had us all predicting that this new album would be dominated by dance music sounds, which it is, right? It really is. And it's so actually just very wonderful. I think we're living in a time of so much uncertainty right now. So many things can seem so scary. And I think Beyonce is giving us permission to say, but I can still sort of shake my groove thing. I can still (laughs) claim my joy. Dance music from disco to house and all kinds of techno was often pioneered by black queer artists. Beyonce is so clearly shouting out to that history. I mean, and it's not even just the beats. If you look at the liner notes, there is Big Frida, there is T.S. Madison, there is Honey Dijon. It is expansive. It's expansive, and I think she's just really making such a point of acknowledging people's contributions. She's saying to the Black queer community, I see you, I feel you, I want to dance with you, I want to party with you, but most of all, I want the world to know more about you. 
This seems like something that for her is also quite personal. In the liner notes, she shouts out her godmother, Uncle Johnny, as well as her queer fan base. Uncle Johnny made my dress that cheap spandex, she looks a mess. <laughs> One of the reasons that we love her so much is because she does give us this authentic part of herself. People can say, oh, that's just Beyonce being Beyonce. And the thing is, that is Beyonce sharing herself with us in a way that we can all relate to. I love to see it. I love to feel it. Yeah. You know, this album is also a little physically explicit. It's certainly, mm -hmm. it's a little uninhibited about bodies. She talks about her bodies, flaunting bodies, sex. It's all in the first person. She's saying like, I want this. From my first listen, one of my favorite songs is the song Church Girl. Where does all of this come from? Let's talk about it. First of all, Church Girl is like my second favorite song on the album. I love it so much. The energy is just very like, yes, we all have to dress up and play nice a lot of the time, but hey, come Saturday night, come Thursday night. Let's shake it. Let's talk about our bodies. When she talks about like the fullness of breasts and thighs and just, hey, just letting loose. Yes, it is explicit, but let's be honest, she was explicit in Drunk in Love. So Beyonce yeah. does know how to go there. She go shake them thighs and them pretty tickle bitties. So get your ex get your math up. I'm a back it up. All right, so I want to talk about a song I know you and I both love, and it's the last song. It is Summer Renaissance, and in it, Beyonce samples and interpolates Donna Summer's I Feel Love, and it is this incredible electric moment. Let's listen. I can hear you snapping over there. This moment blew my mind. What did you make of it? I'm seriously going between snapping my fingers and wiping away tears. It is, like I'm serious when I say that the erasure of Donna Summer's legacy is culturally criminal. When you think about how she put an entire genre of music on her back and we don't talk about Donna Summer enough, we don't listen to her music enough. So to hear Beyonce singing like her, sampling her. And I feel like this is a song on the album too where we all look for that one or two uh, songs on a Beyonce album where you want to say, oh, that's the song that she's really singing on. Like yeah. she's really singing, like she's really singing on Summer Renaissance. It's beautiful. You know, you want to wish that Donna Summer was alive to hear it. Man, it's just Beyonce claiming the women that came before her. Why does it take Beyonce to make us have conversations about Donna Summer? These women who changed pop culture. I try to talk about it as much as I can and shine bright, but I want all of us to be talking about these women all of the time. That is Danielle Smith, the author of Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women in pop and host of the podcast, Black Girl Songbook. Danielle, thank you so much for being here. I want to thank you so much for having me.
28 women are now suing a southern Indiana sheriff and local corrections officers over abuse they say they suffered while imprisoned. The women allege they were raped or assaulted during a, quote, night of terror at the Clark County Jail last year, and that jail officials' failure to protect them violated their constitutional rights. John Boyle with member station WFPL in Louisville has more. And just a warning, some of these details will be disturbing. In two federal lawsuits, the plaintiffs claim men who were incarcerated at the jail used keys they bought from a former corrections officer to access areas that housed women. They allege that over the course of several hours, the men raped at least two women and harassed and threatened others. Twenty women entered into the first lawsuit in June. Earlier this week, attorney Steve Wagner filed a separate civil suit on behalf of eight more women. In almost all the cases, there, a lot of them are still experiencing nightmares and and uh, they're fearful of authority and uh, it's, it's really been a, a very traumatic experience for these women. David Lowe, the officer accused of selling the keys for $1,000, was arrested in October. He's waiting to be assigned a public defender and has pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges against him. His trial will start in the fall. The federal civil lawsuits name him as a defendant, as well as Clark County Sheriff Jamie Knoll and unknown jail officers. They accuse Lowe and other officers who were at the jail that night of negligence and inflicting emotional distress for not intervening. Sheriff Knoll is listed in his official capacity for failing to adequately maintain safety at the jail and train and supervise the officers. Knoll's attorney, Larry Wilder, doesn't dispute that Lowe gave access to the male inmates or that they left their pods. However, the allegations relative to the night of terror that one of the cases lay out, the, the evidence is going to be provided and these things do not happen the way they've been described. When asked, Wilder wouldn't specify which details of the plaintiff's account the sheriff's office was disputing, but he said an internal investigation gathered information from other women in the jail that doesn't match up with statements made in the lawsuit. Wagner, the plaintiff's attorney, calls Wilder's claims absurd. He says there should be extensive footage of the incident from the jail surveillance system. We believe the evidence, including video evidence, will show male inmates entering the female dorms with coverings on their, on their face to hide their identities. You know, what does the sheriff think those men are going to do when they enter the women's area with their identities, their faces covered? Wagner says the two lawsuits will likely merge. He expects more information to come out as the legal process moves forward in the coming months. For NPR News, I'm John Boyle in Louisville. You're listening to All Things Considered. The WNBA's Phoenix Mercury are in crunch time, trying to reach the playoffs for the 10th straight season, and they are missing star center Brittany Griner. Griner was detained in Russia in February after cannabis oil was found in her luggage, and she is very much on the minds of Mercury fans as the U.S. government negotiates for her return. Matthew Casey with member station KJZZ talked to a few fans at a game last night. The home of the Mercury is a newly remodeled downtown arena, near where fans are entering to watch them play the L.A. Sparks, a shoe drive that Brittany Griner organized with the Phoenix Rescue Mission goes on in her absence. Zariah Odom drops off footwear and carries a sign that says, Bring Brittany Home. I donated three times, but one of the times I collected 94 shoes. This soon-to-be seventh grader loves basketball. Her team is the Mercury, which is an original WNBA franchise that's won three more championships than their NBA brother, the Phoenix Suns. 
But this season, players have had to learn to win without Griner's unique abilities. They are all obviously affected, as you see on social media, but they're trying their best to do their best. Mercury fans and players long for Griner to return home safely. New hope came this week when it emerged that the U.S. has offered to trade Russia an imprisoned arms dealer for Griner and another American. X-Factor is the Mercury's nickname for fans. Season ticket holder Patty Telehongva sits near mid-court wearing a t-shirt from Griner's first game with the team, not the only souvenir she brought. So this is a signed photo of Brittany Griner's face. Telehongva has met Griner more than once and has pictures to prove it. She says Griner will autograph just about anything fans ask her to. She is not forgotten and people care about her. We want her back safe and sound. And we want to see her back on the court if that's, if that's possible. On the other hand, Talahongva says Griner has been through hard times before and could return home even stronger. What I would say to Brittany is that, you know, X Factor has your back, man. Another season ticket holding fan of Griner is also a world champion racquetball player. Rhonda Rasich has been paid pennies on the dollar compared to a male counterpart. She knows it's why elite women basketball players like Griner have to go abroad. Completely out of line, completely out of balance, and needs to be rectified about 15 years ago. Rasich hopes Russia will accept the U.S. offer and release Griner. Do whatever you have to to get her home. She's been gone way too long already. The second half starts, but the game never really gets close. The Mercury notched their second win in a row and are led in scoring by the ageless Diana Taurasi. At a post-game news conference, Taurasi calls the U.S. pitch to free Griner a huge step. You know, these things, as we know and as we see now, um, aren't as cut and dry as, you know, we would think it would be. Taurasi has been named the greatest WNBA player of all time by ESPN and is expected to soon retire. Mercury fans hope that Griner makes it home first. For NPR News, I'm Matthew Casey in Phoenix. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Still to come on All Things Considered, a look at the efforts of thousands of musicians and other artists who've been trying to leave Afghanistan since the Taliban took control a year ago. Coming to City Space Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor, and then the following night, Tuesday the 16th, the Democratic candidates. Get free in-person and virtual tickets at wbur.org slash events. Still feeling pretty steamy out there right now. Clouds on the increase overnight tonight. Still breezy, falling to about 68 degrees. Chance of showers overnight. Then we've got a nice weekend on the way. Tomorrow should start up cloudy. Sunshine should eventually break through with highs about 86. Sunday, sunshine lasting all day long, about 87 degrees for a high. The first few days of August should reach 90 degrees. 88 degrees still in the Boston area. The time is 549. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Josh Gondelman put a positive spin on shark attacks. I think what we need to do is just realize and, and feel good that Americans are getting more delicious than ever. <laughs> I'm Tom Papa, and for Peter Sagal, we're cooking up something even more delicious with Jeremy Allen White, star of Hulu's The Bear. That's on the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. All right, y'all, we are headed into the weekend, and I can give you an idea of something I might be doing. NPR recently polled staff and contributors about their favorite games, and now James Mastro Marino joins us to talk about what made the cut. He edits and contributes to NPR's gaming coverage. Hey, James. Hey, Juana. All right, I have to confess, I'm a big fan of this list, and I'm excited to compare notes with you about some of the games that we've both loved. So uh, why don't you start by giving us one of the highlights? Well, if you've got a Nintendo Switch, NPR staff really loved Kirby and the Forgotten Land. You play as this pink puffball Kirby. He just turned 30, by the way. His first game came out in 1992. And his signature move is that he can inhale and consume enemies to gain their abilities. But in this new game, he can even possess inanimate objects left behind in this post-apocalyptic world. Now, if it wasn't so cute, that might sound like a horror movie premise, but <laughs> here's how our own Alba Karuni put it. In this new game, you can use mouthful mode to transform Kirby into a car, vending machine, traffic cone, etc. It's a lot of fun and it's really adorable. And I'll add that it's also great with two players. My wife and I played the whole game together. And when we were done, we gave it to my six-year-old nephew, Ollie, and he just adores it. I like finding this palm tree monster. I'm using this ability. The purple fire. <laughs> the purple fire. It is a little crazy to think that Kirby and I are around the same age. I cannot believe that Kirby has been around for 30 years. All right, so that is Kirby and the Forgotten Land, but I have heard that there is another post-apocalyptic game on this list that I have been really excited about. It's Stray, and it is about a cat wandering around a robot dystopia. I know why I love this game, but James, why don't you tell us more about it? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're right. We've got another kind of gentle post-apocalyptic setting here. Stray just came out last week, and it had the whole internet gushing over its feline protagonist. Here's how contributor Keller Gordon put it. You were just a cat, a resourceful, ridiculously cute orange cat looking for a way home. You find yourself in Dead City, a city filled with trash and neon signs and robots. Luckily, you're not alone in the dark. These robots are friendly and they are quick to offer a helping hand as you slink, meow, and scratch your way towards solving an ancient mystery. Now, Stray is out on PlayStation and PC, and it's the most realistic cat simulator slash adventure game I've ever played. And even if you're not a cat person, you'll probably fall for it. I am absolutely not a cat person, and I can attest to it. This game is so fun and well-made. James, we have sadly come to the end, but I have to ask you, if you're someone who doesn't own a gaming console or a handheld, is there a game you'd recommend that plays well on a laptop? Yeah, a game called Norco really jumps to mind. It's more like an interactive graphic novel than anything else. It's set in a near future in the greater New Orleans area. 
It's another game with sentient robots. And if you're sensing a trend, Norco is also apocalyptic, but in the sense that it feels visionary, even mystical. It has really arresting imagery. And it's about an America that's falling apart. And the contributor who wrote about Norco talked about how it evoked the American South he grew up in and all of its beauty and contradictions and how it still feels wholly modern to play. All right. This one seems totally up my alley. I've got to check it out. Oh, you have to. Those are three new video games recommended by NPR, all accessible to new gamers. That's Norco, Stray, and Kirby and the Forgotten Land. James Mastro Marino edited and contributed to the full list, which you can read now on NPR.org. James, thank you for this. Thank you, Anna. This weekend, a family of musicians from Afghanistan begins a U.S. concert tour, starting with Global Fest at Lincoln Center in New York. Ahmad Fanous and his sons, Elham and Mehran, are hoping to show American audiences a positive side of Afghanistan. They also want to raise awareness about the thousands of artists still trying to flee their homeland, almost one year after the Taliban took control of it. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. It takes a lot of people to help one artist get out of Afghanistan safely. Ahmad Fanous is a well-known singer there. Before the Taliban took over, he was also a judge on an American Idol-style TV show called Afghan Star. He also performed on the show. The Taliban has banned music across Afghanistan. At first, Fanous didn't leave his home. Then he says he received a threatening letter from the Taliban, accusing him and his family members of being infidels for making music. His wife and 18-year-old son, Mehran, a violinist, had gone to India. Another son, pianist Elham Fanous, was in New York. Elham asked an executive at Juilliard if she could help his father. And she really activated her contacts. She found out that the TV network behind Afghan Star was partly owned by Fox. So we were able to get in touch with the Fox uh, Corporation and they were able to evacuate him and my sister with her family with uh, some of the Fox journalists. Eventually, the elder Fanous made it to New York. The organization Artistic Freedom Initiative helped him find housing and a job teaching at the new school. Fanous says he's grateful to all of the people who helped him and his family flee Afghanistan, but he's concerned about the musicians in his band that he left behind. He knew them for over 20 years. They were like basically brothers, and it's like now he's apart from them. So far, Fanous says none of them have been able to leave Afghanistan. The arts are a special profession in Afghanistan. I mean, you are inherently at risk by being an artist. Sanjay Sethi is an immigration lawyer who works with Artistic Freedom Initiative. Some 3,000 artists in Afghanistan have asked the organization to help them leave the country. Sethi's colleague, Ashley Tucker, says the stories they're hearing are harrowing. Beatings or raids on their homes or the instruments being taken or burned. We continue to hear stories from the artists who are still desperately trying to get out. The Fanous family wants to show a positive side of Afghan culture. We want them to 
take something meaningful away from watching us and hearing us and listening to us and listening to our music and meeting us. Their music is a kind of intersection between East and West, blending the Afghan tabla drum and harmonium with piano and violin. <laughs> Meantime, Elham and Miran's mother, and Ahmad Fanous's wife, is still trying to leave India. She has never seen the three of them perform together. That's one of her dreams, to see all of us on the stage together live and be there. That's going to be something special. I'm sure she will cry. For the concert tour, the Fanous family will perform under the name The Heart of Afghanistan. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. Still hot and humid out there right now, 88 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds move in this evening and tonight. Temperature should pull back to about 68. Tomorrow and Sunday should be a little cooler than today was, about 86 both days. Tomorrow, clouds in the morning, then sunshine later. Sunday, all, sunny all day long. Daytime highs in the mid-80s again all weekend. On Cape Cod this weekend should reach about 83 degrees for a high. This is 90.9 WBUR, 88 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. People in Kentucky are trying to recover after flash flooding devastated the eastern part of the state. What are you going to do? you got to grab a shovel, help people out best you can. Those people who are without a place to stay, you try to give them some shelter. The story coming up on this Friday, July 29th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Democrats' agenda looked stalled. It got a major boost, though, this week. We'll find out if there's still time for things to turn around for Joe Biden and his party before the midterm elections. An apology from Pope Francis in Canada this week comes after years of allegations detailing abuse and neglect at residential boarding schools for Indigenous children in Canada. We'll hear how some Canadians are feeling about the pontiff's words. Also, on Marketplace, a recent staffing firm survey found 60% of employees plan to ask for a raise this year. We'll hear why. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir and FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell took an aerial tour of parts of flood-ravaged southeast Kentucky, where the death toll has now risen to at least 16. Member station WEKU, Stan Ingold has more. While flying over the flood-soaked regions, officials got a bird's-eye view of the damage. Mudslides and impassable roads are making relief efforts difficult. Governor Bashir said more people have been confirmed dead. While they do not have a hard number, he said at least six of the dead are children. That's hard. It's even harder for those families and those communities. So keep praying. There's still a lot of people out there, still a lot of people unaccounted for. We're going to do our best to find them all. The governor did say he was encouraged to see six helicopters making rescues and calling to boat crews. He's asking those with missing loved ones to contact the Kentucky State Police. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. Service women and OBGYNs testified before the House Armed Services Committee today about the challenges of getting an abortion while in the military. As Carson Frame of Texas Public Radio reports, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has introduced additional expense, travel time, and danger for troops who need that care. Most abortions take place off base. A legislative provision bars the use of federal funds to pay for the procedure in most cases. Now military women must navigate a patchwork of state abortion bans. Air Force Major Teresa Mozillo had an abortion early in her career. It was shop policy that airmen in upgrade training were prohibited from taking leave unless it was a compelling reason. I could not imagine having discussed such a personal matter with my male leadership. After my abortion, I had a whole day to recover my dorm room before returning to work that following Monday morning at 7.30. Mozilla told the committee she struggled to secure transportation to a clinic and used her entire paycheck to get the procedure. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke today with his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov, urging Moscow to accept a U.S. proposal to free WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner and another detainee, Paul Whelan. Blinken did not provide any details on the meeting with the Russian foreign minister, but again called the U.S. offer a substantial proposal. Oil companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell swam in record profits over the past few months at a time when Americans were struggling to pay for gasoline, food, and other basic necessities. More from NPR's David Gura. Both Chevron and Exxon posted record profits, exceeding what Wall Street expected. That's thanks in large part to higher energy prices brought about by the war in Ukraine. But inflation jumped in June. Year over year, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or the PCE, is the highest it's been in 40 years. NPR's David Gura. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 315 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA riders are being bussed along part of the Green Line this evening between Mission Hill and Jamaica Plain. The T is blaming what it calls a power problem for a temporary halt to service on the Green Line E branch. Buses are running in place of trolleys between Brigham Circle and Heath Street. The T says the power problem began after smoke was seen coming from a manhole on Huntington Avenue earlier today. The Federal Transit Administration is ordering some MBTA workers to attend a safety briefing in response to three runaway trains since May. The latest was Monday at Braintree Station on the Red Line. No one's been hurt. However, the FDA calls the incidents exceptionally dangerous. 
The order goes into effect after midnight tonight. It applies to any worker who moves train cars in yards or in maintenance shops. The T says the sessions will last about 15 minutes at the start of each worker's shifts, and it expects little disruption to T service. Abortion services will remain legal here in Massachusetts after Governor Baker today signed a bill in response to the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. The new state law will protect providers who offer services to out-of-state patients from being subject to anti-abortion laws in the patient's home state. Here's more from WBUR's Steve Brown. Baker quietly signed the bill in his office before his staff issued a news release to announce it. The legislature clarified language regarding when abortions can be performed after 24 weeks, allowing it in cases of grave diagnosis for the fetus as well as to save the life of the mother. Becca Hart, holder of Reproductive Equity Now, is overwhelmed with joy. I think it is an extraordinary thing that Massachusetts came out swinging to the Supreme Court's attack on reproductive freedom with a bill that makes us the national leader on protecting patients and providers. The new law also requires insurers to fully cover abortions without passing deductibles or co-pays on to patients. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A bill to help military families in Massachusetts is now on Governor Charlie Baker's desk for review. Today, lawmakers passed the bill that requires the state to contact members of the National Guard who served in Afghanistan and may have been exposed to burn pits. Westfield Senator John Velas served in Afghanistan. He says his bill will get local military uh, members onto the Veterans Affairs Registry. So when, God forbid, if they get some bad news about exposure to burn pits, they're in that registry so they can be compensated in a timely fashion and can avoid what our friends from Vietnam had to go through with Agent Orange. The legislation also will make it easier for military spouses to transfer their professional work licenses to Massachusetts, and it extends in-state tuition at public colleges and universities for members of the military stationed here and for their families. In the forecast, the mercury hasn't budged in hours. Still 88 degrees now. Should get down to the upper 60s overnight tonight. Maybe some showers tonight and early tomorrow. Then for the weekend, sunshine for the most part. Highs in the mid to upper 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And Jarl and Pamela Mohn thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Kentucky, at least 16 people have died after flash flooding in the eastern part of the state. This is following a series of storms. Several hundred people have been rescued so far. And Governor Andy Bashir said today emergency crews are still out searching. The people impacted by this are going to lose just about everything. And we believe that there will be thousands that have impacted. Well, one of the towns inundated by floodwaters is Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is where we find Dee Davis. He is publisher of The Daily Yonder. He's on the line now. Mr. Davis, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We got a mess here, but, you know, I'm safe. I lived on the top of a hill. Uh, A lot of people had it hard. Uh, The water came up quick, and it was violent, and um, it was rough. Yeah, I saw a video you posted last night. This is it was the Kentucky River, and it was rising up to the Main Street Bridge, and then right over it. That's right. We're used to floods. You know, sometimes uh, the water spills out of banks. This was not like anything we're used to. 
Rains have been um, uh, pretty present the last few weeks, and then the other night it just gushed. This was just too much water. What are you hearing from your neighbors? Do they have power? Do you have water? Do you have what you need? Uh, I think some people in town have water. I don't. Some people have lost power. Some people have lost internet. You know, I've got my grandchildren and my six-year-old with me, and it's like if the bacon and ice cream sprinkles hold out, then I think we'll survive. (laughs) Your crew will be all right. Yes, that's right. I gather, I mean, for local businesses, it must be beyond a mess. We we, we spoke this morning uh, with the owner of the Kentucky Mist Distillery there in Whitesburg. This is Colin Fultz. He said he's at the distillery, and it's just mud everywhere that he's trying to clean up. Yeah, there's mud. Um, all those places right along the river, like the Moonshine Distillery, took it rough. And, you know, there are a lot of people who live in, in flatter ground, and the water came up so quick. Uh, some people got evacuated in the middle of the night. Some people didn't get out. When the flood comes, there's no uh, talking to it. No talking to it. Yeah. This rough end. When it's over, what are you going to do? You you gotta grab a shovel, help people out best you can. You know, I was in kindergarten with the 1957 flood hit hazard. That was the record flood here in Whitesburg, and this one beat it by about six feet. And uh, I I remember being out in the yard and watching my grandmother and. Uh, float by in a canoe uh, because her car flooded out and she she had a bag of groceries in her lap and she waved at me and I waved at her and that's like I was five years old and I've never been able to uh, let go of that image you know it's just crazy things happen when the water gets up and and you know when there's loss of life you think in Kentucky we had uh, terrible tornadoes in the west and now this it's like you wonder when it's going to start raining frogs. One other place to ask you about an institution there in Whitesburg, which is Apple Shop, the media and arts and education center that, that documents Appalachia, that has these incredible archives about Appalachia. Do you have any idea how they're doing? Did they survive the flood? Uh, my wife works there, and I <clears throat> worked there for 25 years. I think that they took it pretty hard. The on-air studios, the theater got washed away. I think you know, the building held up. Um, the archive, which is really precious cargo, I think they got, I heard that they got most of the stuff to higher ground, but that's, um, you know, that's that's the discourse of Appalachia. That's, um, those are the stories of miners and quilters and people who have um, um, built this place and learned the lessons uh, the hard way in and it's really important information, and it's um, it's a treasure. It sounds like y'all have been through this many times, too many times. Is there something the community does to, to come together, to help each other out? Well, I mean, in Appalachia, just like in a lot of rural communities and a lot of urban communities, you know, um, what you got to each other. It's not like... Um, there's going to be a grant or an investment that changes the prospects of helping your neighbor out, and sometimes it feels bleak. But once you once you start uh, lifting a few loads, then you know you're part of something.
Well, Mr. Davis, I'm glad you're safe. I'm glad your family's safe. And I appreciate your taking the time uh, to speak with us today. Thank you. Yeah, uh, no sweat. Appreciate it. That's Dee Davis on the line there from Whitesburg, Kentucky. Something surprising happened in Washington this week. The Democrats' agenda that looked stalled from the outside got a major boost with a deal between West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on what they are calling the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. For President Biden and Democrats, this badly needed good news comes with not much time before this fall's midterm elections. So is there still time for things to turn around for the president and his party? We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hi, Tam. Hi, Lana. Tam, it has been a really busy week at the White House. Why don't you just start by telling us what happened? It started with the president stuck at home, stuck in the residence with COVID, but then things started to turn around. By midweek, he had tested negative. And now I get to go back to the Oval Office. Thank you all very much. Then the bipartisan Chips and Science Bill passed the Senate. By the end of the week, it had passed the House, too. And in the middle there, all of a sudden, Manchin and Schumer announced this deal on this big piece of legislation that includes reducing Obamacare premiums, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, and a huge investment in clean energy, paid for in part by tax changes for the wealthy and businesses. Now, we should say that this has to be passed with Democratic votes alone, and, you know, it's not done until it's done. The Democrats have the narrowest of margins, but even just being able to announce a deal was quite a breakthrough, given the last year of back and forth and will they or won't they and winnowing of the ambitions of this plan. I think a lot of people were surprised by the timing here. I follow Capitol Hill pretty closely, and I certainly wasn't expecting this. Talk to us a little bit more about how this happened. Yeah, it looked very dead. So this was initially called Build Back Better, and it was President Biden's big, huge social spending initiative. The most recent that anyone had really heard was that Senator Joe Manchin had cold feet about rising inflation. Then all of a sudden, this deal was announced and it had a new name, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. President Biden described it yesterday as a historic agreement to fight inflation and lower costs for American families. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Some of you will see a lot of similarities between the beginning of the Build Back Better initiative. It's not all of it, but we've moved a long way. I am curious, Tam, then, was this a surprise to the White House or how involved was the president? Well, the president wasn't involved at all, at least not directly. That's what Senator Joe Manchin told Talkline in West Virginia. I was not going to bring the president in. I didn't think it was fair to bring him in. Uh, and and uh, this thing could very well could not have happened at all. Now, White House staff continued to stay in touch with Manchin's team. And, you know, for the president, it doesn't really matter if he had his sleeves rolled up doing the negotiating or whether Senate Democrats came up with a deal that happens to give him a vast majority of the things that he had been talking about in recent months, and including these climate provisions, which pencil out at about two thirds of what he had been asking for since the beginning. And it strikes me, Tam, a lot of this is what President Biden campaigned on when he was candidate Biden. So it makes me wonder about the politics and what this could mean for Democrats who are heading into the November election cycle soon. 
President Biden's approval rating is very much underwater. Part of his problem, though, is Democratic frustration that he and Democrats in Congress were not able to do some of the things that he promised. Well, this would amount to him and Democrats in Congress doing some of what had been promised in the campaign. So that might relieve some of that pressure. And also the one really big dark spot on the week for the president was these new GDP numbers that came out showing two quarters in a row of economic contraction. Whether you call it a recession or not, people are worried about the economy. They feel very uncomfortable with the amount that prices have risen. And for the president and for Democrats to be able to get out there on the campaign trail and in ads and say, we know you're worried about inflation. Well, guess what? We've got something to address that. Can't hurt. That's NPR's Tamara Keith covering the White House. Thank you. You're welcome. Here's an idea for this Saturday night. Put down your phone, go outside, and look up. That is because three different meteor showers will be happening at once. The Southern Delta Aquarids, the Perseids, and the Alpha Capricornids. As a reminder, these celestial shows happen when the Earth sails through the orbits of comets. And those comets leave behind dusty, dirty trails of debris. Then when that dirt slams into the Earth's atmosphere, it heats up and produces a flash of light. Now, you do not need any fancy equipment to see this show, but you'll need to get as far away from human lights as possible. If getting out of town isn't in the cards, maybe make a pact with your neighbors, keep the lights off, it takes time for your eyes to adjust to the dark. Now, astronomers are not sure how many shooting stars we might see as these three showers overlap, but they say you've got to be patient. This is a quieter spectacle than the flashbang light show you saw on the 4th of July. So grab a blanket, find a good spot, and start counting. Hey, don't forget to make a wish. Oh, never. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. Can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky like shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, wish right now. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, more than 40% of college students have experienced housing insecurity, according to a recent survey. As rising rents threaten to make the problem worse, we'll hear about what schools can do to address the issue. Wall Street ends the month of July with three straight days of solid gains. The Dow rose nearly 1% or 316 points to close at 32,845. S&P rose nearly 1.5% half percent to end the session at 41.30, and the Nasdaq jumped close to 2 percent to finish the month at 12,391. All the details coming up in just about 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. At Fenway Park tonight, Austin Davis takes the mound for the Red Sox for Game 1 of their series with the Brewers. Clouds move in this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures pulling back to about 68. Tomorrow and Sunday, a little bit cooler than today was, about 86 for both days. Tomorrow, clouds in the morning, then sunshine. Sunday, sunny all day long. On Cape Cod this weekend... 
It should reach about 83 degrees for a high. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. All this week, Pope Francis has been in Canada on what he calls a pilgrimage of penance. He's been going around the country to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system. This was a program funded by the Canadian government and administered by the Catholic Church that was aimed at erasing the culture and language of Indigenous people. I have come to your native lands to tell you in person of my sorrow, to implore God's forgiveness, healing, and reconciliation. This apology from Pope Francis this week comes after years of allegations detailing abuse and neglect at these residential boarding schools. Stephanie Scott is a member of the Anishinaabe from Rosso River First Nation. She's also the executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, which gathers and preserves the testimony of survivors. She was at the Pope's speech in Musquachese, Alberta, earlier this week, and she spoke with me from Winnipeg, Canada, Treaty 1 territory, and she started by telling me about a very important item, the National Student Memorial Register. We wanted to bring a National Student Memorial Register. And what that is, is it's a 50 meter long red cloth that holds the names of 4,120 children that died in residential school. And so it's a very powerful symbol of, you know, the harms that happened to the little ones that attended those schools and didn't return. And when we got there, it was very... um, you know, haphazard in in the way that they were going to honor and respect these children. The Pope, in the end, did up having a private witness. He blessed the cloth. He kissed the cloth. And for the survivors and the NCTR staff and me, that was a moment um, to recognize that he actually had paid attention to all the children that had died in those schools. And, And for me, as a daughter of a residential school, survivor, that's an opportunity and one step towards reconciliation. Do you feel that others felt similarly, like when they listened to his remarks, when they met with him? I mean, what are you hearing from your friends, other members of Indigenous communities about how they personally received this apology? It was a mixed reaction. Even though they had heard and witnessed his apology, Um, They were very emotional about it. It was very heavy. We also traveled with one of our elders who's a survivor who was actually fathered by a priest in the residential school. So so people weren't readily to accept. Um, You know, he said many welcome things, but I was struck by what he didn't say. Really? Like what? what? What did you want him to say that he did not? Well, I think it was really important that, you know, they acknowledge the harms that had been done that they should have acknowledged the children that had died, that had suffered horrific physical and sexual abuse, and the fact that they were going to make reparations. And and those are things in regard to returning land, you know, really supporting the healing. And sometimes that is financially because it's going to take a lot of resources to support community members on their path to healing. I know that he was making a commitment in order to support that, but it really needs to have actions 
So that's really what the survivors that we were with were looking for. May I ask, as you've been working to document these stories from survivors, what has been the most challenging part of that work for you personally? For me personally, um, I'll tell you a little bit about my history just so you can can mm -hmm. understand. Um, I was born and raised here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My mother is a residential school survivor. She was running away back and forth from the schools, uh, became pregnant, you know, the, the school sent her home to her community. She was giving birth to me, went to the children's hospital. Back then, they were still automatically taking children away. So she held me once as a young mother at the age of 16 mm -hmm. years old. You know, and I was automatically put into the system, the child welfare system, because that's what was happening to Indigenous children back then. So I didn't see her again until I was 28 years of wow. age. So I am driven personally, professionally, in order to make this change, because I think as a young child, what that would mean to her, and it was devastating to her. You know, she had a lot of mental health challenges, as did I, because you grow up without your community. You grow up without the lack of understanding, without the power of your people and, and you know, the strength that comes from your community, your language, your ceremonies, your traditions. Is there a story that has stayed with you, a particular story? We were out in, in Sioux Lookout, and there was a granny that came to me that was about 70 years of age. And she sat down with me and she said that when she was a child, they were about six and seven years old, her and her friend, and they hated the schools. They wanted to run away from the school because of the abuse and harms that they were suffering. And so these two little girls hid clothing outside of the school, in the bush in order to run away from the school, in order to make it home. They put on those clothes and they ran far away from the <gasps> school and made it home. And I thought, you know, six and seven, those are the age of my grandchildren. And I thought how powerful they were in order to hide clothing in the dead of winter to get home to their family that loved the them because that's that where took. they felt safe. Yeah. The courage that it took to do that and the intelligence of those young mm -hmm. children, that's really what stuck with me. And I think that, you know, everyone that was trying to run away and, and made it home from those schools, more power to them because they were running for a reason. And those are the stories that we can't forget. Well, for people outside Canada, can you talk about why gathering and archiving these records that you're collecting, this testimony, why it is so important? To have the personal survivor oral history and record in the archive paired with records, paired with community narratives is essential to understanding the truth. And we still do not have the full truth of what happened in Canada to all those 150,000 children that attended the schools. You know, records were destroyed. Um, we're losing our elders and survivors and knowledge keepers at a, a very fast pace. So we need the understanding from their perspective what really happened. And they were children. Like, we can't forget those were children that were in those schools. Um, you know, understanding the illness, the malnutrition, the experiments, it's all important to preserving the truth of residential schools so that in the hopes that it can never happen again. 
no matter where I was in this country and when we were, you know, working with survivors in order to share their statements, they said, I, I'm telling you this because I never want this to happen again. So we've got, you know, decades of work to do and we're here to do that work for them and, and we'll continue to do it and I'll continue to do it until I can no longer, you know, preserve that experience. Stephanie Scott is the executive director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Thank you very much for sharing this time with us. Miigwech. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast, still feeling pretty muggy out there right now. Clouds on the increase tonight, breezy, falling to about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, should start up cloudy, sunshine eventually breaking through, highs about 86. Sunday, sunshine lasting through the day, about 87 for a high. The first few days of August should reach 90 degrees. Red Sox make a homestand, continuing their homestand, that is, this weekend, with Milwaukee coming to town. Boston pitcher Austin Davis will make his third uh, career start tonight. The Brewers will send out Brandon Woodruff, 7:10 start time. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Great Freedom Adventures, curated cycling tours inspired by the history and nature of New England. North Shore and Cape Tours booking now, greatfreedomadventures.com.